Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, I want to welcome you guys, young adults, and uh, if you have a Bible. Go with me, Romans chapter 4, all right? Romans chapter 4. We're doing 12 verses today, um, 1 through 12. And so if you got a pencil, if you got a, a marker, if you have a highlighter, take that out. You're going to take a lot of notes today. We got some good places we're headed. Uh, and so I am excited that you guys are here. Now, um, like I said, we are in the book of Romans. We're actually doing like, oh, like a half a year, more than that, 32, 35 weeks or so going through the book of Romans to master the book of Romans. 430 verses, we're going through every single verse. Why? Because the book of Romans is a good book. Why is it, why is it a good book? I'm so glad, yes. The book of Romans is a good book because the theme of it is how you, regardless of your past, your mishaps, your, your, your Google search history, whatever it is, how you can be made right with God regardless of who you are. It's the theme of righteousness. Week in and week out, I've given you that word over and over and over. Righteousness is how you can be right with God. All right, so that's the theme of Romans. That's why we're spending 32 weeks going through the book of Romans, all 430 verses. Here's an opening question, though, I want you guys to turn and discuss, all right? The question is, do I have a slide for it? What was your first technological device you got? Technological, that's like a, that's like a big word, right? What was the first tech device you got, right? Mom, dad, aunt, grandma, goldfish, whoever gave it to you, what was the first device? So I'm gonna give you 30 seconds, turn to a neighbor, ready, set, go. All right, uh, all right, so uh, first technological device you got was what? Weed? No, I'm playing Wii, okay. You got a DS, all right. That's a Nintendo thing, right? What's up? A Game Boy. Which one, the color? Gray. Um, so I grew up when the Game Boy um, wasn't in color. It was like black and white, and then you had like these weird lights you could put on it and so you could play. It was wild stuff. All right, in the back. Xbox 360, all right. Anyone else? First technological device you got? Rock Band, what is that? Oh, like the, uh, wait, is that Guitar Hero? Guitar Hero, yeah, like the cheap form of Guitar Hero. Ryder. PS2, all right, all right. Anyone else? First tech device you got? iPod Shuffle. That little one or the one with the wind? Like, you remember, like, so you remember, like, did you guys see Steve Jobs? He's like, that's what this pocket was created for? Like, when he, like, unveiled it, he popped it out. That was, that was fire. That's a brilliant marketing move right there. Anyone else? DS. The original Xbox, yeah. Anyone else? All right, so, who are you pointing to? Who, someone back there? Oh, what's up? What do you say? The, the Nook? That's like a book thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I prefer, I prefer hard books. All right. Um, all right, so the first tech device I ever got um, was this thing right here. Go to it. This was like in 1998. Raise your hand if you were not born within the year 1998. Like, that's older than you... Sick. All right. Um, so I was 20. I'm playing. I was like, what, six? Um, this thing right here was the very first MP3 player. All right. Here's how it worked on the back of it. You know, like how like radios have like a headphone jack? You had to plug this thing into the radio. When your song came on, it would download the song somehow. And that's how you downloaded songs to your MP3 player. But when the song came on, so you never, you'd always miss like the first 10 seconds of the song or whatever it was. You have to, you know, and then press the button. Wild. All right. Give me the next one. 
uh, portable DVD player, all right? This was a game changer on family, like when we would drive uh, places. I'd be sitting in the back watching whatever, fire. All right, I'll uh, give me the next one. Raise your hand if you've ever even seen this, play- have you ever seen this PlayStation before? All right, fire. All right, so this is, I do it. I thought, I remember when I got this one Christmas morning, I opened it up and I thought, I'm never going to be bored again. This is, I've arrived in life. I used to play um, Crash Bandicoot, which also came out on PlayStation 2. Um, I played, uh, there was like a 007 James Bond game uh, that was trash. And then, uh, what other games? And, uh, some other games. All right. But those are the first uh, the, like, technological devices that I ever got. But let me give you the very first like, actual tech devices in certain categories. Give me, the, give me yeah, there, all right, this guy. His name is Martin something. I can't remember his last name, but he's the guy. Martin Young, does that sound right? It's not Martin Luther, I can tell you that. Uh, Martin something, and he created the cell phone. Look at that thing. That's wild. For sure you're not texting on that. You could use that as a weapon. Um, all right, give me the next thing. This is the very first Macintosh, is what they used to be called um, before it was Apple. Uh, Macintosh computer, right? Uh, you, literally, you probably your pocket watch. If you, I don't know who's wearing a pocket watch. Why, why did I say that? Uh, it has probably more computing power than this thing. Uh, and then I don't think I'm, I don't, all of you guys are too young for this. Go to the next one. This was the very first YouTube has anyone ever actually, were you old enough to see this? All right? So I'm 29, so I'm going to imagine I'm, I'm a lot older than most of you guys. And then the next one, all-time favorite, for sure none of you had it, this thing right here. For some reason on MySpace, Tom forced you into a relationship with himself via a friend. I don't know, like, if you, none of you guys, raise your hand if you had a MySpace. Raise your hand. So, okay, raise your hand if you did not have a MySpace. My gosh, you don't even understand the joke. All right, so you know how, like, somehow you two forced you to listen to their music if you bought... Like, like an iPhone. For some reason, I don't know how every Apple phone has a terrible album of them on their phone. I don't know how they figured this out. Um, I'm making no friends with that. And so uh, somehow when you like created a MySpace, your first friend request was from Tom and everyone had to. There was like no denying it. It was like, you're going to be in a relationship with Tom, right? I know it's a crazy thing, right? But all right, you can put that down. You can put that down. All right. So these are called a prototype. Does anyone know what a word a prototype means? Anyone know that? Anyone know what a prototype? Prototype. Here's a dictionary definition. A first or prelim... A preliminary model of something from which other forms are developed or copied. And so today, we're going to learn that Paul uses the life of an Old Testament patriarch, an Old Testament guy named Abraham, as the prototype of faith. A model of what faith looks like, how it operates, and how it can be replicated, how it can be copied. Now, Abraham, uh, Father Abraham, had many sons, you probably know the song. Abraham is one of the, like, the, the great names in all of human history. There are a few names that are known and honored all throughout centuries, but Abraham is a guy who's world, is worldly famous. Now, Abraham's story begins in the book of Genesis. It's the very first book of the Bible. If you're new to this old Jesus thing, welcome. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abraham. The dude is 75 years of age, right? So he has, uh, he's wearing New Balances, and he can get into Costco before 10 o'clock, and uh, yeah, he gets... Senior discounts everywhere, right? So old dude, right? Now, interesting enough, God comes to interrupt his story, reveal himself to him when he's 75 years of old, commissions Abraham to be the very first Jew. So, so literally Abraham, off the back of Abraham, God creates the whole nation of Israel. All of the Jewish people come from Abraham's lineage um, as he starts a country off him. He tells him basically to go to this land. You'll hear more about it in a second. And I want, you to, I want you to populate it with your family and then other people and things like that. And so a whole nation, which is now the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, literally come from this one person. God launches Judaism, the religion, off or the faith off of him. Now, there's tons to know about him, but for time, we don't have too much to go into him. So here's what you need to know. He is known, he is honored, and he's also claimed, people claim him, that he's the father of all three largest monotheistic religions. If you're taking notes, mono means what? One. 
Yeah. Uh, the joke is it's not what your friend got at prom. That's not it. Mono means one, right? Theistic God. One God, right? Monotheistic, one God. What are the three largest monotheistic religions in the world? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Now, uh, growing up, whenever I was uh, uh, you know, home from school sick, I don't even know the show still airs or if you even know what it is. It was a show called Mori. You know what Mori is? Is they do DNA tests and to see like if the person was the father or not. So here's the truth, right? So if, if all three religions, uh, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, um, were on that show, they would find out that Abraham is not the father of the Islamic faith. And it's not even like historically, archaeologically evident that he was played any part. It's supposed to come off one of his sons. It doesn't make any sense. But anyways, we do believe that Abraham is the father of Judaism, and that does make him, uh, he connects him to modern-day Christianity, because basically Christianity, to make it simple, is Judaism completed. We believe all of what Jewish people believe, and 27 other books that they don't actually adhere to. So I believe in all the 39 books of the Old Testament, and I add 27 new ones about the life and ministry and personality and salvation message of Jesus Christ. So um, Paul uses Abraham, who by every Jewish metric stands head and shoulders above most of the human race and is most revered in Judaism. And he uses them as the prime example that God saves people through faith, and faith, and this is important that you understand this, is the medium in which God uses to transfer the gift of righteousness to mankind. What does that, what does that mean? Transfer the gift of righteousness to mankind. How you can be made right with God, faith is the medium which God puts that into your account. We're going to talk about that today. But before we hop where we're headed today, let me kind of pause and go back a few weeks to kind of give you some context of what we learned. Because again, we've already done eight weeks and we're only in chapter four, right? So in previous weeks, we've discovered that Jews believe they were in a right standing with God for primarily three reasons. Number one, they were Jews, right? So they were kind of racist, like low-key like high key, super racist. And it was like, if you're not a Jew, like, bummer. I'm not, I'm not gonna see you in hell. I'm not visiting, right? Like, that was how they viewed it, right? The second was that they did some good things. And finally, they had the Old Testament law, the Old Testament books. They had the 39 books of the Old Testament. The first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers, written by Moses. The Pentateuch is what that's called. They had all that. And then they had all the law, 613 laws of the Old Testament. You know, thou do this, that, whatever. The Ten Commandments, all that stuff in Exodus 20, right? So they had all that type of stuff. And so Paul comes in, kind of like, you know, Miley Cyrus on a wrecking ball, <laughs> to like destroy the argument that like you're not saved and God's not hyped on you because you come from a religious family. And you're not saved because um, you can do enough good. In fact, you can't do enough good to get your way to God. That's a popular belief today. Ask many people on the street, hey, are you going to heaven? And they'll say, yeah, of course. Okay, why? Well, I'm a good person. Compared to who? Well, obviously, like Hitler and Osama bin Laden and my ex, whatever. Right? Like, there's, there's a person that they identify with, and I'm like, I'm better than they are, and therefore, I'm, I'm good, right? But what if the metric that God looks at your life and my life is not the people of this world, but a measure of perfection in Jesus Christ? Bummer, right? So, so we're not, you can't do enough good to make yourself perfect if you were not perfect to begin with, right? I've given you this illustration like a few weeks ago. I'm going to re-give it because I love it. The illustration I gave in junior high, whenever I speak there or even high school, is uh, like a little bit of poop in a smoothie taints the whole thing, and you can't get it out. It now has tainted the entire thing. It needs to be made new, which is why the Bible talks about being spiritually reborn, made new. But that's a whole other message. All right. Uh, the last thing is that the Jews thought they were good because they had the Old Testament, right? The 39 books, that whole stuff, prophets, law, all that. Here's the purpose of the law. We've talked about this in week one or two. And if you're new to all this, go on our podcast and you'll hear, you'll hear like 
so many messages on this over the last handful of weeks where I've talked about this. It's, what's our podcast, Brandy? Just go on the Apple or whatever it is. It's SCG, Young, Seacoast Grace Young Adults. That's what it is. All right. Um, all right. So the, the purpose of the law was this. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin that could never remove sin. Reveal sin, not remove sin. All right. So uh, let's hop with where we're headed today. So here's what Paul wants us to know. You and I can be made right with God the same way that Abraham was made right with God. That's through faith. Now, this is important because the Jews thought that Abraham was made right with God because of works, because of good things that he did. However, the message that we're going to learn today is he was actually not saved by doing good things, helping grandmas across the street, none of that. He was saved by his faith in God. And so today, we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter 4. In these uh, 12 verses, Paul discusses three important questions. So if you're taking notes, here are the questions. How was Abraham made right with God? How was Abraham made right with God? Number two, we... When, when, I'm sorry, when was Abraham made right with God? How, when, why? How, when, why was Abraham made right with God? So, how was Abraham made right with God? When was Abraham made right with God? Why was Abraham made right with God? Uh, that was really quick, so you can go, go listen to it later. All right, um, grab your Bibles, go with me to uh, Romans chapter four, starting at verse one. Um, oh, by the way, look, we're going fast tonight, like we always do. Um, if you have any questions, if you're new here, by the way, you got a piece of paper when you walked in, you're going to do discussion groups in like an hour, and I'm playing. Uh, you'll do discussion groups hopefully in like 15 minutes, where you'll discuss what we're talking about today, how you agree or disagree with me, but really it's God. Um, and uh, if you have any questions about anything I've said, just text that number, um, and it'll go to my email. People think it's like my personal number, and they're like, hey, dude, what's up? And it's like, I get this only on Sundays. So uh, it's not my personal number. I'm not giving you my number. All right. Uh, Romans 4.1 says this. Um, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, highlight that, we'll come back to that, according to the flesh. In other words, right, what reality had Abraham discovered in his relationship to God? And what can we learn from his experience thousands of years ago as he became the very first faithful follower of Yahweh? It was the personal name of God revealed in the Old Testament. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified, highlight that, that's a word we defined in weeks past. It's a legal term. It's a legal term that means to be, to be declared right. So um, if you were on trial and you, you were declared not guilty, you in that trial are considered justified. That's what that word means. For Abraham, or for if Abraham was justified by works, good deeds, helping grandmas across the street, all that stuff, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, when God came to interrupt his story, he at the time, at the age of 75, worshipped the moon goddess. I can't remember the name, but worshipped the moon goddess. Now, it wasn't because like, he was adamantly against the God of Scripture. Um, scripture wasn't even written yet. Um, he was just did it in ignorance. He just had no idea that there really was a God, and his name was Yahweh, and that he was personally revealing himself to him. And so during this time, really, in his life, God revealed himself to Abraham, and his story, again, is found in Genesis chapters 12 through 15, really, is where you find a lot of the story, if you care to go back later and uh, research that. So anyways, Abraham believed God, responded to his will and revelation, and then trusted that God would fulfill the promises that God told Abraham that he was going to use his life for and with. And so Abraham appears in Scripture as a man of good works. And so Paul says that if Abraham was made right with God because of good works, he has something to boast about. He's got something to be really egotistical about, right? He's got something to be really prideful in his self self about. Now, when you think about it, our performance, our works always give us something to boast about, right? I mean, you can look at the things that you've done and show people how awesome you are, show them how valuable you are, how you ought to be esteemed, uh, valued, respected, uh, uh, looked after, whatever it may be. See, the truth is, you may not boast about yourself openly, but we all have clever and subtle ways of saying to others that I'm significant, I'm valued, look at me. 
Uh, I'll give you an example, an embarrassing example of this, all right? So this last week, um, I wasn't here um, last Sunday. Rob gave a little message on uh, communion, and we did a worship night, right? And that's because I was up north at another church visiting, getting to know their staff, hearing about their student ministries, all that type of stuff. And so they're telling me about theirs, and, and, and I'm asking questions, and all of a sudden, I started to start telling him about our student ministries without him asking. Now, that, earlier that week on Wednesday, we had our youth fall kickoff. It was like 70s theme. It was wild. Tons of people are there. It's, it's a crazy event, right? So I think we had a total of five or 600 kids, something like that, right? It was in our main auditorium. It's wild. And uh, I start telling him this. And I'm, I'm, I'm showing him videos. Like, this guy cares. Like, he lives like 400 miles away. I'm like, yeah, dude, like, look at all that, dude. Sick. I spoke to those kids, dude. Uh, sick. Whatever, like, all these, all these things, right? And, uh, and so I'm showing videos, telling this, that, or whatever thing. And, and then I'm driving home, and I'm like, that's so cringy. Like, why, why is that in me? Like, this guy, I, I barely know his name. And for something in me needed to communicate to this guy that I'm, I'm, I'm significant. Like, like, look at me. I know what I'm doing. I, I'm not a failure. I'm someone to be esteemed. I'm someone to learn from, right? It's like I drove like this, like, oh, like, it was like, oh, like, I did, oh, you, right? See, what this looked like was this kid in school who showed everyone the high test score that they got. It was as if, like, you know, they got it back, and it was like 98, 99, 100%, 101, whatever it is, right? They get it back, and they start going around, like, as a child, look at this grade, you know, like, like, like and they, what they want for you to look at it and go, like, oh, dude, I got a 68, dude, and you're like, oh, I'm better, you know, like, what, that's what they want. Or it's the kid that got the gold medal uh, for some sport accomplishment and wears it around his neck the next day at school. Like, that for sure happens in high school. I remember it, right? I think I was probably one of those kids, um, but I never got gold. It was always like bronze. But anyway, uh, I'm not bitter about it. All right, so anyways, at some level, right, we all try to manage our image to convince the people around us, maybe even the people that we meet, that we're a person of significance. Where does that come from? There's something in you. There's something in me, right, that just needs to know that we're significant. We have a sense of value, a deep sense of worth. It comes when we try to achieve an identity. That's which we root ourselves in through our performance. I'll say it again. It comes when we try to achieve an identity through our performance. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but I'm going to give you a statement that we may get to unpack in weeks to go. But the strongest identity that you could ever have is one that is received from God, not achieved through your performance. The strongest identity that you could ever have is the one that is received from God, not achieved through your performance. And so you can imagine, right, that Abraham discovered pretty early on in his life the same thing that we discovered early on in our lives growing up in a pretty performance-oriented culture. That one way of gaining a sense of significance and value and okay and esteem is if you perform good in the things that you're tasked to do. And as long as you're performing and as long as you are achieving and as long as you're doing better than your peers, you're okay. But that's not really like an abundant life. I mean, even our modern educational system has targeted us towards each other. My SAT scores are better than yours. My grade, do even SAT scores count anymore? But anyways, my GPA, like my extracurricular activities, it's all in this grand game of competition. And if you use your entire life as a competition to the people around you, one, it's going to be really hard to feel good about yourself because there's always someone further along. And two, it's just going to be really difficult to build community and lasting relationships with people because you're always going to try to outdo them. You're always going to try to beat them. That's not an abundant life. Right? That's exhausting. It keeps you in a constant state of needing to do more, achieve more, become more, so that you can believe you are valuable and that you belong and that you're okay and that you're accepted. It's like a, it's like a medicine that needs to be taken again and again and again that modulates the sickness. It can't actually cure the sickness. Let me ask you a question. It comes in the form of a question. Why? Why does every person you've ever met struggle with inadequacy? A sense that these things aren't okay. I mean, just think quickly about all the memes about social anxiety and depression like some of the most popular memes. 
Just think about how consumed you are personally about trying to find value and worth through the comments and likes of other human beings. Like I know a lot of high school students, right? Like they'll post something on, on whatever the platform is and uh, definitely not MySpace, and uh, whatever the platform is, and like, I can always see them checking their phone, making sure that number of likes is going up, the comments are going up, whatever it is, there's just something about us that is building our identities off the esteem, value, and, 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 and attraction that we get from other human beings. And then maybe just think about how much energy that you are spend, spending on trying to become someone to achieve a worthy identity. Think of how much energy you grew up, or maybe even now, you funnel into sports. You funnel into getting a GPA, a high GPA. You funnel into going to the right college. And it's almost that the more and 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 the more you do, the less and the less and the less and the less, you start to feel good and okay about yourself. I mean, just for a moment, see it this way with me. Do you know the very most popular type of books, whether it be on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever else they sell books, are ones dealing with topics of self-worth, self-image, finding love, learning to love, being accepted, or learning to accept? That's interesting, because this is what the word righteousness in Scripture actually means. To be one, right with your creator, two, right with other human beings, and three, right with one's own self, an inner sense of anchoring, okayness. I don't need other people to validate me. That's the gift of righteousness that God wants to give you. It only comes in the form of being right with your creator. Think about it. How could you ever feel right, be right, if you aren't right with your creator? You, you, would, never, you, would, never, you would never have an inner sense of peace and okayness if you're never actually okay and right with your creator. And so Paul, week in and week out, has been telling us the gift of real self-worth and real significance is not something that's self-generated because you cannot make yourself right with your creator. Therefore, that sense of inadequacy is never going to be met in the external world around you. We need a righteousness from outside of us given to us, an ability to be right with God, transferred, imputed, given to us. We're going to talk about that in a second. Follow with me, verse 3. It says this, for what does the scripture say? In other words, he's going to take us back What did the scripture say centuries ago? Remember, we're talking about Paul. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. I want you to highlight the word believed and highlight the word counted. By the way, I'm in the ESV, so if you're in something else, it probably says something different. But it would say say reckoned to. It would say accounted, accredited. It would say something along those lines. Uh, Okay, a few uh, few weeks ago, um, I got a dreadful IRS notice, right? And uh, opened it up, and it said that my wife and I, we owed $2,200 to the IRS. It's sick. Um, and, and the way I move money around is from this pocket to that one normally. So, uh, and so like, I was like, we, we just paid like, that, amount, like that, that amount like a few months ago. Like what's going on, right? It's, I'm hoping, I'm praying it's a clerical error, right? So my wife's on the, on the phone with the IRS for like ages. It's, it's better than the DMV, I'll be honest, but not that much better. So we finally get this guy. He's an angel of a guy, really kind and awesome. And he, uh, he's like, oh, I see what happened. And uh, he says, when you paid your taxes and when you had to you know, give us a payment, um, it was only accredited to your husband's account, not yours. Even though you guys are a family unit and the government only sees you as, as one entity, as a family, for some reason it was accredited to his account but not yours as well. There's some clerical error that happened here. Let me make it a right standing with you as well. And here's what he was doing. What he was doing is that saying my right standing with the IRS was being counted or accredited to my wife's account because we're in one family. What is the message of the gospel? It is that you are separate and have no righteousness. In other words, you are destined and doomed to be separate from God. However, through faith, you can be adopted, grafted into God's family, and his righteousness can, because you are in his family, be accredited, accounted to your account, reckoned to you. That's what he's going to teach us. And so in the book of Romans, chapter 4, verse 3, he's actually quoting an Old Testament uh, verse in Genesis, chapters 15. It says this. I think I have it up on the screen. It says this. And he brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven. This is God speaking to Abraham centuries before this. 
and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness. And so if you're taking notes, this verse is the very beginning of something called the Abrahamic covenant, that God would populate a nation, right, through Abraham's family. We know them as the Jewish people and the, the country of uh, Israel, and it was Israel and Judea back in the day. And that through this one family lineage, one day God would send someone to be the savior of the world. Now, I want to pause really quick, because what we don't know is the very specific details. And what we don't know is that Abraham probably didn't know the very specific details, like it was going to be like uh, Jesus was going to come, his name was going to be Jesus, that it was going to be God in a bod, right? He didn't know any of that type of stuff. All he knew was that God was going to use his family to bring about a message and a person that was going to bring salvation to the world. That's what Abraham ended up knowing. And so because he followed, uh, uh, um, uh, he followed Jesus because he followed the promise. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. And so thousands of years later, from this bloodline and his ancestral tree, a woman named Mary would give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. In the book of uh, Matthew chapter 1, um, if you read it, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And what you'll find in there is that if you go back, it's like 22 generations. Or so, I can't remember. It's really long. You'll find that they can trace literally Jesus' lineage through Mary, his mom, all the way back to Abraham centuries and centuries and centuries before this. And so he believed in God's promises that pointed him forward to Christ. Just like we are believing in God's promises that point us backward to what Christ already has done for us. Oftentimes I get this question, how were Jewish people saved before Jesus? And the answer is believing in Jesus. All the Old Testament, I gave, I gave our high schoolers a, a, a big word this morning, Christological inference. Anyone know what that means? Me either. Um, Christological inference, it means looking at the Old Testament in a Christological way, a Christ-centered way, by looking at figures and, and characters and, 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 and people and seeing Jesus in them. Right? And so all throughout the Old Testament, King David, Goli- uh, David and Goliath, uh, Noah, all these people, God is bringing and showing his message of grace through these people and through these individuals. That's what a Christological inference is. And so that's what he's talking about, um, that's what he's talking about here, right? So uh, the Jews were saved by the future coming of a Messiah. We are saved because he already came. And so they're having faith, the same faith, in a future event that we're having in a past event, in the same person that would happen on the cross centuries later. Follow with me in the next uh, verse 4 through 5. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the argument is simple, right? If you work for your salvation, then God owes it to you. Just like your employer owes you a certain amount of wages of the hours in, in which you've worked. It's not a gift. It's not like... Um, you know, like if you have employees or like I have some, it's not like I give them their gift, like, like their check, and I was like, you're welcome. You know, like, like it's like they, they, they've earned it. Like it, they, they have more than deserve it. It's theirs. They've worked the hours upon agreed upon expectations and all that type of stuff. That's what's being talked about here. Now, the reason, the reason that being in a right with standing with God is a gift is because no one, even if you try to be a good person, can't earn acceptance with God. By the way, that's actually really good news because your whole life, your entire life is trying to earn acceptance from other people. Your whole life is like a first date, right? It's just trying to earn acceptance from other human beings to get that job, to go to that school, right? To achieve, to, to, to climb X, Y, or Z. And the gospel says, kind of, it pumps the brakes and says, you can't earn God's love, but it's yours if you take it by faith in Christ. Follow with me the verses six through eight. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Uh, highlight lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Highlight that last part too. So Paul does something interesting here. He puts the man of good works, Abraham, and then he puts the man of bad works, King David. 
In fact, this is a quotation from the 32nd Psalm written by King David during a time which his hands were metaphorically covered in the blood of his best friend, Uriah. Let me share the story with you quickly. So uh, what ends up happening is one day, King David's sitting up high up on his palace, and he sees a girl on top of her roof showering, obviously with no clothes on. And he's like, he tells the servant, bring her to me. Like he's stoked. And so the servant goes and gets her. He ends up sleeping with her. This happens to be his best friend's wife. He gets her pregnant. Now he's freaking out. Uriah is also the lead uh, military uh, general of his army. They're at a war right now. And so he's hundreds of miles away. Now, if this girl's pregnant and Uriah's not there, it's pretty easy to figure out she cheated and she'll say, with King David. So he comes up with this plan. I'm going to bring him back home. And I'm going I'm to have him like spend the week here. And obviously, they'll probably go home. He'll go home to his wife and, and they'll have sex. And they'll think, oh, this is their kid. And he's like, I can wipe my hands of this. What ends up happening, though, is he's such an honorable man. He's like, I can't even go home to my wife if my men are dying at war. And he's like, frick. So what does he do? He gets a bunch of four locos and gets him drunk. And he gets so drunk, he just passes out on the floor. Obviously, he doesn't go home to his wife. Now he's like, I've got to kill him. So he sends him with a letter to go to, the fr- to, go to the, the, another general. The general opens up, and the letter sends, send Uriah to the front lines to be killed. He has no idea. He's handling, he's holding his death certificate as he walks over to the other general. And that's what ends up happening. A few days later, he gets sent to the front lines of the battle, and in the trenches, Uriah ends up dying, and he thinks that he is totally scot-free, and then the whole story of Samuel, but we don't got time to talk about today. Here's what you need to know. The two most accomplished men and esteemed men in the Old Testament are Abraham, the moral man, and King David, the immoral man. Abraham, actually, in James, I believe, is called a friend of God. David, the title he's given, is a man after God's own heart. I read stories like David killing his, his, his buddy and then sleeping with his wife going like, that's not a dude I want to hang out with, you know? He's called a man after God's own heart. The question is, what are we supposed to learn from this reality? A few things. Number one, both men have a heart of repentance. They acknowledge when they were wrong and ask God for forgiveness. Two, both men believed in the coming of Jesus and both men trusted not their moral performance to get them uh, to be right with God, um, but, they, but rather to trust in God's promises and a following of his will. Follow with me in verses 9 through 11. It says this. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Circumcision was a quintessential identificational mark that you were Jewish. Being uncircumcised, you weren't Jewish. Simple enough. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as a righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision. I want you to highlight the word sign of circumcision and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Oh, there's a lot to talk about. All right. Abraham was declared right before God before he ever did a religious ritual, before he ever went to a church service, before he ever did a good deed. In fact, his circumcision came 14 years or 13 or 14 years after he was declared to be right with God and in right standing and, and, and his friend. Um, he got circumcised at age 99. Fat bummer. Um, and this, 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 this sucks. And so at the age of 99, he got circumcised and he became a follower of Yahweh, the first Jew ever when he was 75. But it also does more than, um, uh, uh, let me say it this way. This also destroys all of the Jewish arguments that you were made right with God through the act of circumcision, which is what the ancient Jews thought. That be, this is identifying marker that you are in God's family, just the cutting away of some flesh. And if you do this, you are made right with God. It's a work. And so he's basically another bringing a wrecking ball and saying that it, it, the ritual doesn't make you acceptable in God's sight. By the way, just like coming to church doesn't make you acceptable in God's sight. You could be here every single week and yet still be doomed to go to hell because you've never actually developed a relationship with God. God is not interested in your religious pretensions. 
or your rituals. He's most interested and fundamentally most cares about your heart. This is why like a guy like David could do some pretty atrocious and horrific things, yet still be called a man after God's own heart. Why? Because his faith was more than based on ritual. He, when, he, when he realized he was wrong, he repented, asked God forgiveness, and changed the way in which he lived. It was all about his heart. God doesn't care about rituals. God doesn't care about any of that type of stuff. He cares about most fundamentally your heart. But this also does more than destroy the Old Testament understanding of circumcision. It also cancels out the modern equivalent of circumcision, which is baptism. Let me kind of tell you really quick what the real purposes of circumcision and baptism were. I know you're thinking, I was wondering when circumcision was going to make it on the teaching calendar. Thank God. Uh, let me tell you two things about circumcision that um, I found really interesting this last week. Um, if you don't know what it is, we have a video. No, I'm playing. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we have a whiteboard. Uh, that's not it. Um, if you don't know what circumcision, I can't help you. Uh, ask me. That's your opening icebreaker. Um, uh, <laughs> two things about circumcision I want you guys to know. The first is this. Circumcision is a sign. This is like, this like blew me away this last week. Uh, I was studying for this yesterday. God chose, don't, please don't say this out loud, what organ as a sign of circumcision? Don't, you know, please don't yell it out. Right? But like, like he could have chosen like get this haircut, pierce your ear, like make a scar, get a cool tattoo and a cross, uh, chop off your pinky toe. Could have done anything. He chooses a very specific organ on a male's body in the dead center of his body. Why? He wants us to remember what this ritual stands for. Track with me on this. Sex is often a place where people go to get value and find love and get love. And he's saying, I want you to remember the most important thing of where you actually get value, worth, significance, and acceptance, and love. It is not going to come through intercourse or whatever it is. It's going to come through me. Not just this, it's also a laying down of your sexuality. It's saying that all that I am is all for you, including my sexuality. It's also needed for procreation, obviously through the act of intercourse with sex, right? It's also saying, though, that even through this act, when a, when a, when a husband and a wife are, are, are having sex, and, and a child, brand new life is introduced into this world, it has child-rearing implications that I will bring up this child in a way that is set apart, that's different, that's cut away from the world, to use that analogy, <laughs> to be different, that men will lead their family. Only the guys are laughing on that, uh, right? And then a more grotesque part of this, yeah, you guys are adults, uh, guys have to handle it daily. It's a constant reminder, Right? Of, of being distinct and set apart and different, cut away from the world. All right, uh, um, and then the next is circumcision as a seal. Right, A seal in the ancient world operated as a guarantee of permanency or an unchangeable act. Well, if you've been circumcised, you're not going back, right? That's not happening. Uh, and so it's an unchangeable, it has an act of permanency. Let me give you an example. This isn't like a, I'm not drawing theological connections here, but I thought of it this interesting, it just popped in my head. So uh, the Romans, they put a seal on Jesus' tomb to declare permanency to his death and that this movement that he was leading was dead with it. The only problem was they didn't know he was who he actually claimed to be and that he would conquer the seal of death and that he conquered it for us as well, spiritually speaking. And so circumcision as a seal was designed to show a permanence to God's promises and a permanence in our faithfulness to follow him. Till death do we part, I will be separate and, and, and I will follow you. And so circumcision and baptism teaches us a spiritual truth by a physical act, and that, that God's people have two things. Number one, the sign of a life wholly surrendered to God, all of me for you. Number two, the seal operates as, and I stole this from a commentary, it says this, the guarantee of the permanency of this great truth, it is that God's expressive way of saying with visible force, this is the grounding of your life, the secret of your functioning as a human being, this great truth of acceptance before me, and it will never change. That if you come to me by faith in Jesus Christ, you have the guarantee 
of being made right with me. You have the guarantee of going to heaven. You have the guarantee of seeing your loved ones who have also placed their faith in me one day in a place called heaven. The next question is, what is baptism all about? I mean, thank God, right? Like Jesus didn't go, uh, as you know, Jewish people were getting circumcised, like do this in remembrance of me, that would be a bummer. But anyways, uh, so baptism, right? What's baptism all about? Baptism is the act of fully immersing yourself, mind, body, will, and sexuality in water, representing that you have given all that you are to all that God is. And so what is faith? It is more than belief. Faith is a surrenderance of your life for his life. It is way much more than believing certain things. I've said this before, right? In the book of James, it talks about even that the demons shudder at Jesus' name. What this means is that Satan and all the demonic realm know more of God's scripture than you and I do. They've actually seen God face to face. They can quote scripture better than you. They could probably give better sermons than all of us combined. None of them have the opportunity to have fellowship with God. Why? It's more than just believing the right things. It's more than the mental assent to agree with certain theological presuppositions. A presupposition is an assertion of reality, a revelation of who God is. A holding, right? There are tons of people who know their Bible in and out, but they're not going to heaven because they view their, the Bible not as a living text, but just a ritual. I need to check this off today. Not like they're sitting with God, asking God to change them day in and day out. So you follow with me in verses 11 through 12. The purpose was to make him the father, we'll highlight that of all who believe, without being circumcised, so the, religi- or the, where are at? the righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Two things really quick before I get you in your guys' group. Number one, here Paul's talking about what circumcision stood for, the gift of being made right with God by surrendering yourself wholly to him and believing his promises. Number two, the phrase that I had you highlight, the father of all who believe. Two things here you need to know about. He literally is the biological father of all the Jewish people and the entire nation of Israel, right? They are physical descendants of him. But number two, he's also the father of faith, spiritual descendants. He first received being right with God by believing God was who he said he was and meant what he said about being right with him and the only way to be right with him. And so when you and I trust that the basis of our acceptance by God is by trusting in Jesus and what he has done for us, not anything based on our performance, we are acting as Abraham's spiritual descendants, the father of us, basically. And to be honest with you, I can think of no greater news or, uh, uh, than understanding this reality and truth, that your worth, your value, your sense of acceptance and okayness doesn't come from other people. It comes from what your heavenly father thinks and says about you. So uh, for those of you guys know, uh, you, you know, you know me pretty well. You know my dad, right? And uh, tomorrow my daughter, Noelle, turns eight months. And uh, it's so funny, like last night after service, uh, I, uh, I got home and uh, I started to like till the backyard for some random reason. There was like this dad urge to just mow the lawn. And uh, so like I'm, I'm, like, I'm like tilling the ground and I got a bunch of seeds. And so like, cause there's like, it just drives me crazy cause it's not perfect. And every dad needs a perfect, you know. And so I'm, I'm up there, I got my new balances on and, uh, and, and so, and my fanny pack. And so I'm, I'm doing, all, and my, my wife comes out like, what are you doing? And there was one point where I was standing like this, just staring at the lawn. And she went, oh God, you're a dad. And I went, oh, I was like, no, like it's happening. You know, I'm turning into my dad, my gosh. But anyways, right, so my, da- my, my daughter knew well, right? She's eight months. But I imagine, let's say when she's eight, 
she's going to come home from school or, or, or something. People are going to bully her. They're going to be mean. She's going to have low self-esteem because she's been listening to what other people have said about her. her. performance doesn't match up to the performance of her peers, whatever it may be. And in that moment, she's going to look at herself and she's not going to appreciate herself. She's going to be very self-deprecating. She's not going to feel good about herself. And if you've been in a season or situation in your life, then you know what that's like, right? Where you feel down about yourself. You don't really like where your life is and what's going on in your life for whatever reason. It's not because things actually bad are happening in your life. It's because other people um, are, are being uh, mean. They're being abusive. They're, when you grew up with a bully, whatever it may be, I imagine there's going to be a day with my daughter. She's going to come home and she's going to run into my arms or my wife's arms and she's going to be crying because she had a tough day with people saying bad things to her. And I thought about that and I don't know how I'm going to do this, but there's nothing more than what I would want for her is to see herself through my eyes. That she's beautiful, that she's valued, that she's accepted, not because of a performance. If she gets a, a, a 4.0 or a 1.0, like I'm going to love her the same. If she excels in her sports or she doesn't excel in her sports, that I love her the same. That my relationship with her is not based off the merit of her performance, but because she's my daughter who I love and I accept wholly as she is. There's nothing more than what I would want for her in that moment as she's feeling so devalued for her to see herself through her father's eyes. Better yet, to see herself through her heavenly father's eyes. My prayer for you is that we would begin to see ourselves through our heavenly father's eyes. It'll free us from the rat race of trying to search for value, validation, significance, worth in the things and people of this world. So my last question for you before I dismiss you guys to go in your guys' little discussion groups is this question here. How would your life change? How would your life change if you could see yourself from the perspective of your heavenly father who knows you, loves you, and accepts you if you're found in Jesus Christ? Put your arm around somebody, I'll pray for us, and then I'll get you guys in your groups. Father, today I ask that you would continue to teach us about what this righteousness means and how it can be accredited, accounted to God into our account. Lord, I ask that you would help us be cognizant of the way in which you see us. And uh, yeah, give us the confidence, Lord God, to see ourselves as you see us. And so God, would you speak through um, the discussion groups today? Would you lead us? We love you. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.